Welcome to Sunday School from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that you have joined us for this session. Today we are continuing our look at Nehemiah, and the lesson is titled, Down But Not Out. And we're looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6, uh, selected verses from those chapters of Nehemiah. But before we get into the lesson, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask that your spirit, Lord, would speak to our hearts and would show us what you have for us from this lesson. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. Let me begin with a question. I'm going to name several uh, people in pairs, several pairs of people, and I want you to think of what these pairs have in common. So we have Batman and the Joker, Superman and Lex Luthor, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, Popeye and Bluto. Now when you think of those four pairs of people, what is it that they have in common? What is the connection between the two? And I'm sure you realize by now that these are the hero and the villain. The one who is in charge and then the one who is opposing. And so when we look at a story, you know, every good story has a hero. But every good story also has opposition. There's someone or something that fights against the hero. So today we're looking at Nehemiah, and we're focusing on those who oppose Nehemiah and the other exiles as they're attempting to rebuild the wall at Jerusalem. So last week, you remember, we talked about how Nehemiah came to the exiles, and he shared his vision with them, this vision that they could rebuild the ruined walls of Jerusalem, that they could finally take away the disgrace that was on them and on their God. And this has meaning for us because God has a vision for us as well, a vision that we will be full citizens of the kingdom of heaven, a vision that we will bring glory to our Father when we are known as God's children, that God will be honored through us. And so I like the way Paul lays out this vision. I have a slide here of Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And Paul is talking to the Philippians, and he says, And this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we look at this prayer, this is the vision that God has for us. Now, does this describe your life? I have to ask myself, does it describe my life? The lesson from Nehemiah is, this can be a description. God's vision for us can become reality, just like His vision for the exiles became reality. Now, we will face opposition, just as they did. But God was bigger than their opposition and God is bigger than our opposition today. The background of our story, you remember the exiles had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem approximately 90 years before this. 
They had rebuilt the altar. They had begun to offer sacrifices again. But the walls of Jerusalem themselves had not been rebuilt. The walls still lay in ruins. And this was a problem for two reasons. First, a wall in ruins meant the city had no protection from its enemies. A a city behind a wall uh, had plenty of protection. These walls were were heavy-duty objects, as much as 16 feet wide. But a wall, a city without walls, was a city that was unprotected, that had nothing to stop the enemy from coming in. But also, uh, a wall in ruins was a disgrace. It was a visible symbol that uh, the people were weak and powerless. And because they were known to be God's people, it was a reflection on God himself. A wall in ruins was a disgrace to God's name. Nehemiah, you remember, was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. And when Nehemiah learned about the condition of the wall, he felt a call to go back to Jerusalem to do something about this. And so he gets permission from the king to leave the court in Persia and come back to Jerusalem to lead this effort to rebuild the wall. Now, the exiles had what they needed, but they needed someone to cast a vision for them. They needed someone to show them, to tell them this is possible and that the wall could be rebuilt. So as Nehemiah goes back, he spreads this vision before the exiles and they take it up. The rebuilding of the wall begins. So God had a plan, a vision that his people would come back from Babylon and realize their role as God's chosen people living in the promised land. Now, the exiles had somewhat lived up to this vision. They had returned to the promised land, but they had stopped halfway. They certainly were not flourishing in the land. They were just kind of limping along. They were existing, but they weren't thriving. They were bringing dishonor to God because of, their, because of their failure. Now, does this sound familiar? You know, we are God's people. God has called us to live lives of holiness, lives that actually embody Christ in this world. Instead, a lot of us are in the kingdom, but we're limping along. We're failing to thrive. So our lack of growth and vitality This ends up being a disgrace to the God whose name we claim. Now, Nehemiah brought a vision to the people. He brought something that had not entered their imaginations. This group of exiles were the children and the grandchildren of the original group that had returned. These exiles had grown up in Jerusalem without a wall. To them, the wall, the lack of a wall, wasn't a disgrace. It was the norm. It was the normal way of life. It was what they were used to. And so Nehemiah shows up to say, God wants to do something very different for you. So in our lives, too often, we've gotten used to living lives without God's full blessing, without the victory and the power that God promised. Now, God has told us through scriptures, our lives can be very different. We are told we can live lives where we rejoice always, where we can be content in any and every circumstance. 
a life where my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But have we caught this vision of what God wants to do in and through us? Like Nehemiah, we're going to face opposition. In today's lesson, we're going to look at several things that Nehemiah and the other exiles learn as they face this opposition, how to deal with opposition, how to overcome it. So, our first lesson comes from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And I have this uh, part of the text on a slide. And so we're going to read it together. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard night and day to meet this threat. So we can see that the first lesson we learn, Nehemiah and the exiles faced opposition from without. They faced opposition from the pagan people who surrounded them. These, uh, these people wanted to do their best to discourage, to hinder Nehemiah from uh, rebuilding this wall. Now, their enemies were a, a varied group. There were the Jewish people who had been left behind. When, Babylon, when uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, when he took away most of the people to Babylon, uh, he left the poorest of the poor behind to work the land. So you had this group who were left behind. You also had the original Canaanite tribes. Uh, some of them were still in the area. And then you had people who were brought in from the other parts of the Babylonian Empire. Now, when the exiles returned, the people of the land offered to join with them. They said, we want to, to help you. We want to rebuild the temple. We want to offer in the sacrifices. Now, they did worship the God of Israel. The people of the land had begun to worship God, but they also continued to worship their own gods. So they offered sacrifices to the Lord, but they did not give up their pagan worship. And so the exiles refused to join with them. Uh, and this created hostility, opposition from those around them. They mocked the exiles for their efforts. You know, they called them feeble. They said they were foolish for imagining 
that they could rebuild this wall in just a day. They were foolish for thinking they could offer sacrifices and get this done. They were foolish to use the, this rubble that lay around them to try to rebuild the wall. Now, the wall, the stones had been burned, and these were probably limestone, which when it's exposed to extreme heat, it becomes very brittle, it cracks. And so after these walls have been burned, uh, they're not really uh, of very much use in rebuilding another wall. And so what the, the opponents of Nehemiah are saying is, can you imagine them building a wall out of this? Can you imagine what that wall is going to look like? Now, they were facing not just mocking and insults, but there was the threat of physical violence. Sanballat had an army with him, and it says there was plotting that they would unite and oppose the exile, that they would come together and fight against them. And this probably would not have been a formal military attack, but more or less what we think of as terrorism, as these attacks that were kind of hit and run, designed to frighten and to, to scare the people uh, of the exile. Now, we are going to face opposition today from spiritual enemies. In this life, if we are God's people, we will be persecuted. I have a slide here of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so, there are several reasons for this. First, when we live godly lives, it's a rebuke to those around us. It's a criticism of those who aren't living godly lives. Jesus reminded his disciples of this. I have a slide of his saying from John 15. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That, that is why the world hates you. So we can see there will be opposition. You know, we face opposition because we have spiritual forces that oppose us. I have a slide here of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul is describing the spiritual enemies that we face. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul is reminding us that we have opponents, and it's not just people around us. We have a, a supernatural enemy that is fighting against us. Now, when we look at Nehemiah, we see that he deals with this opposition in two ways. First, he prays. But it's not really the kind of prayer that we expect. Nehemiah prays for God to deal with his enemies. He says, turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder. So Nehemiah is praying for the destruction of his enemies. We look at this and think, well, I, I didn't think Christians were supposed to pray like that. But Nehemiah is praying in this way, not because these are his enemies, not because they've done anything to him personally. He is praying like this because they are God's enemies. 
It's not that they are opposing him. It's that they are opposing God. And so his goal in this prayer is not to see his enemies destroyed. It's to see God's enemies destroyed so that God's purpose can advance. You know, when we deal with opposition, we don't make the opposition about us. Instead, we realize that it's about God. And we allow these enemies not to be our enemies, but to be God's enemies and to let him deal with them. So we begin with opposition. We begin dealing with opposition by praying that God will deal with the enemies in his way. But Nehemiah didn't stop with prayer. As important as prayer is, Nehemiah also acted. He posted a guard. The scripture says, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So we are to pray, but then we are to take the precautions that we can. We are to do what we can to guard ourselves. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, as we've already looked at, Paul warned them about the danger that they face, this struggle that's against spiritual forces. And that should give us concern. But I have a slide here of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul has told them what the problem is. But then he goes on to say, there is something you can do, something to protect yourself. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So Paul is letting us know we have this enemy that opposes us, but we also have access to the armor of God. There are things that we can do to uh, defend ourselves. We have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. So we are not defenseless. When we build these things into our lives, we can use them to face the opposition that arises. Now, a second lesson that we can see from Nehemiah comes from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I have this on a slide for you. Uh, let's read it together. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So, we see a lesson here. Nehemiah and the exiles were facing opposition from without, but they were also facing opposition from within. Some of the more wealthier of the exiles were taking advantage of their poorer brothers. They were lending money, and evidently at high interest rates. When the poor could not pay them back, they were actually selling some of their fellow Jews into slavery. So the exiles were literally enslaving themselves. Now the people were facing an economic crisis, a time of famine uh, when there was a shortage of food. And so they were having to borrow money. They were having to mortgage their land. 
uh, to buy food and to pay taxes. And as a result, they put up these sons and daughters as collateral. When they couldn't pay, their children were taken to be sold as slaves. But, you know, the biggest thing about this is who is doing it. It's not their enemies. It's not uh, the Canaanite people around them. It's not the Persian Empire that they are a part of. It's their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who are doing this to them. So a lot of times, like the exiles, we can find ourselves ensnared in slavery. You know, we find ourselves trapped in bondage. Maybe it's bondage to addictions or habits, behaviors that we know are destroying us, but we can't stop. Bondage to fear or anxiety or worry. Bondage to sabotaging relationships. And we're in this bondage not because of an outside spiritual enemy, but because of the selfishness of our own lives. We are doing this to ourselves by refusing to submit to the Lordship of Christ. When we insist on maintaining control, on living for ourselves, when we insist on doing what we think will please us or benefit us, we end up in slavery. Jesus said this very clearly. I have a slide here of Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so Jesus is telling us exactly this. When we cannot surrender our lives to Him, when we insist on living our lives the way we want to, we wind up in slavery. And it's a slavery that we have brought upon ourselves. Now, a third lesson we see from Nehemiah comes from chapter 6. And I have a slide here of verses 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So we see that Nehemiah and the exiles faced a major challenge, and with God's help, they achieved incredible results. Because of this, God was glorified, and the people around them lost their self-confidence, this confidence that they could defeat the Israelites using their own gods. Now today, God is wanting to do great things through us to glorify Himself, to reveal His power and strength. And we can shine a light on the weakness and foolishness of this world, of this world with its modern idols. We can show them the futility of a life that's lived without God. When you look at this scripture, it tells us the wall was completed in 52 days. Now, that doesn't seem like much. You know, we read that sentence and we kind of pass right over it. Think of what that means. The wall had been destroyed over 150 years ago. The original group of exiles had returned over 90 years ago. And still, the wall was not built until Nehemiah comes. But once he comes and once they start to begin work, they complete the wall in 52 days, less than two months. And this was an amazing accomplishment. You know, these people who had never known a wall, now 
their lives were completely different. Now they were no longer living among these ruins. This was done in the face of this opposition. You know, Sanballat and Tobias, as we saw earlier, the governors of the lands around them, these were opposing them. But they were also facing opposition from uh, their own people. It mentions Noadiah and the rest of the prophets. These were Jewish people, but they were opposing Nehemiah. In chapter 6, there is a, a man called Shimeiah, and he might have been a priest, but presumably he was a prophet. He was secretly in league with the enemies of, of the exiles, and he was trying to get Nehemiah to sin by going and hiding out in the temple. And Nehemiah knows this, and so he, he doesn't allow himself to be tricked. But what you can see is that the opposition was from those outside, but it was also from Jewish people within uh, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem itself. So we see that God has always used his people to do incredible things. And this did not stop in biblical times. Uh, we have the example of Atelemachus, who was a Christian monk living in the Roman Empire approximately 350 years or so after Christ. While he was in Rome, he attended a gladiatorial match. You know, this was when two gladiators, two men, would actually fight each other to the death, and all of it for the amusement of those who came to watch. And when he saw this, it so horrified him that he jumped into the arena and separated these two gladiators, telling them, you know, there's no way you should be doing this. Now, the crowd was so incensed that he had disrupted the proceedings that they stoned him then and there. But his uh, example was not futile. It says that the emperor was so moved by this that he actually outlawed uh, the use of gladiators, and this effectively stopped it, at least there in Rome. And so you can see what one man was able to accomplish. So getting the wall rebuilt in just 52 days, it was an incredible thing, and it brought God great glory. And God is still doing incredible things today. One of the greatest things He does is to bring glory to Himself by transforming our lives. God takes people who once were trapped in sin and makes them into totally new creatures. Paul describes this transformation to the Galatians when he talks about their old lives. And he says, you know, in your old life there was sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and fits of rage and drunkenness. But then he says, your new life, though, your new life is characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And so Paul says, the transformation that took place within you is amazing, and this is to the glory of God. When our world sees us transformed, then God is glorified. And I have a slide here of a verse from Philippians. This is Philippians 2.15, where Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And so Paul is presenting this vision to say, 
When we do this, when we allow God to live and work in us, we display his glory to the crooked, to the, the depraved generation that surrounds us. Now, when the enemy saw that the wall had been rebuilt, they lost their self-confidence, it says. And this wasn't just confidence in themselves. This was the confidence they had in their own gods. This was the confidence in their idols, that somehow their idols were stronger than the God of the exiles. But when they, say, when they saw the true God at work, the confidence in their own gods was destroyed. And the same thing could happen in the world around us. And we don't think about idols very much today, but our world is full of false idols. It's filled with our attempts to replace God with other things. You know, we are supposed to look to God to provide security, to provide our identity, our sense of well-being, to provide our happiness, our joy. And when we substitute other activities, other things, we are setting up idols. And this pursuit of idols leads to a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul described it. Idols eventually prove themselves to be powerless. They prove themselves to be unable to do what they promised us. And we can see a, a good example of this in social media today. You know, social media has become an idol for many in our culture. It's more and more prominent. And we, we try to use social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, all of these sites to provide meaning and satisfaction and enjoyment for our lives. You know, social media promises us fulfillment, but it ends up leading to lives of discontent and lives of worry and anxiety and stress. And we can see that it doesn't present what it promises to us. Our lives end up twisted. I have a slide here, which is a, a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. And this word was put into the dictionary in 2013. It's FOMO, F-O-M-O, an acronym which stands for fear of missing out. And this is the idea that an exciting or interesting event may be happening elsewhere, often aroused by seeing the post of others on social media. And you know, this idea, this fear of missing out, the idea that others somehow are having more fun, they're living lives that are more exciting, more fulfilling than ours, better lives than we live. This arouses often a deep envy on our part, an envy that we are being denied what should be ours. And so it leads to a life of anxiety and worry and discontent, a deep dissatisfaction with life. And so this idol of the social media ends up ruining our lives. But when others can see God at work in our lives, when they can see us transformed, when they can see us truly content, truly joyful in Christ, then the foolishness, the feebleness of their own idols are revealed. And we can shine then like stars in the sky. We can reflect God's glory to the world that's around us. So we see Nehemiah, we see the exiles, we see them finally realize the vision that God had for them, this vision to rebuild the wall. The result, God is glorified. 
the idols of those around them are shown to be impotent. The question is, can we realize the vision that God has for us? Can we live lives of victory, lives of transformation? Can we live lives where in the end God is glorified and the false idols of this world are revealed? I hope that's your goal. And I hope that you allow God to truly move in your lives and through your lives, uh, beginning this week, to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and what we've seen in it today. We thank You for the vision that You have for us, for what You want to do in our lives, Lord, to transform us so that You may be glorified through us. And we ask that you would make this a reality in your name. Amen. Amen.